Welcome to the Open Bible Podcast, a resource of Church of the Open Bible in Swift Current, Saskatchewan. In today's episode, Pastor Jay and Pastor Joe will tackle the doctrine of sin. What is the inheritance of sin? What does imputation of sin mean? And how does this affect us all? Hello, church and guests. This is Pastor Jay Hines. And Pastor Joe Sorgen. Welcoming you to another episode of the Open Bible Podcast. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. On today's episode, we will be looking together at chapters 36 to 37 of Charles Ryrie's book, Basic Theology, which continues section eight and his discussion of the biblical doctrine of sin, and specifically the Bible's teaching on the inheritance and imputation of sin. So let's start off by just talking a bit about what is the inheritance of sin, according to scripture. What do we mean by that, Joe? Yeah, so when we say inheritance of sin, of course, we kind of gave our, our definition of sin uh, last week and the previous couple of weeks as well. But uh, it's the idea that sin has been passed down. It's how we have this sin in nature. Each one of us as, as human beings, we're, we're born with it. Um, you know, it originated with Adam, with the original sin. And then that sin nature from that point forward has been passed down uh, from, from generation to generation. And so we're born with a, a sin nature. And that's what we essentially mean by the inheritance of sin. That's maybe the, a very simple way of describing it. Yeah. And so part of this means, and I think we've maybe talked about this briefly in, a, in an earlier podcast, that uh, we don't, we're not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we're sinners. That, that's who by nature we are. And specifically, we're, we're born that way. And we, we've inherited that sin nature from our parents and them from their parents and all the way back to Adam. And there's a number of scripture passages that, that talk about this. And uh, what would be some of those, Joe? Uh, one that comes to mind right away would be uh, in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. Um, specifically verse three, but I'll read beginning at verse one. And it says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were this is the key word right here, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And that the, those two words by nature, that's very, very key to understanding this because we realize it's not that, you know, we are, like you said, um, people who happen to sin. No, we, we are born sinners. It's our very nature. Um, we, we are born and, and by nature are children of wrath, as it says there, which means we deserve the wrath of God because we are by nature sinners. We are dead in, in our sin. So that would be one key text. What's another one, Pastor Jay? Yeah, another one would be from Psalms, uh, Psalm 51, where David says, Behold, I was brought forth or born in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So that really couldn't be much clearer. Um, we are born with a sin nature. It's something that we clearly receive from our parents. And that's important because this means no one's born good or innocent, or for that matter, even partly good or partly innocent, but rather we are all uh, morally corrupt. We all have that sin nature. And that's something that I think is not a popular truth. I mean, there, 
we tend to have, at least in our culture, this idea that look at this little baby, so innocent, so pure. Um, this idea that all oh, these little children are so innocent and pure. And of course, in a sense, that's true comparatively. I mean, a baby who's only lived a few days compared to me, who's lived 41 days, is obviously uh, not committed the same level of sins, that sort of thing. Um, they also are less uh, or not cognizant of their sin and rebellion, but nevertheless, there's still that sin nature and it does show itself. I mean, you know, I think there's a lot of people who would say, oh, how could you say your child is a sinner? You know, this new infant baby, how could you say that they're, you know, morally corrupt and everything? Well, most people, once they have their own kids, find out pretty quick just by experience that, oh, no, they are a sinner. I mean, it is amazing how you can see even just disobedience and defiance against parents from a very young age in, in little babies. Um, you know, not just the crying of this is how I communicate and I'm hungry, but the cry of anger and defiance and impatience. So that's, that's part of this. And, and that's what David tells us here, right? That's we were conceived and born uh, in sin. And that sin, again, was inherited from our parents who inherited from their parents all the way back to Adam and Eve. And that, of course, we see in Genesis. Uh, you know, Genesis 1 talks about the animals, but also uh, humans as well, that we reproduce according to our kind. And so once Adam sinned, and what's often called original sin, that first sin, uh, him and Eve, ever since there, they have reproduced according to their kind. Sinful parents reproduce sinful children. And we only need to go to Genesis 4 and see the story of Cain and Abel to see that. By the time we get to Genesis 6, the whole world, mankind, is, is uh, their mind is always on sin, right? So, uh, and on evil. So we see that there uh, as well. And, and yet, maybe sometimes people question that and say, well, but I see people do good. Even people who are not Christians, they still are able to do some good. How does, how does that work? Does, is that proof then that we somehow are not actually sinners by nature? How would you respond to that, Joe? Well, I think we have to understand that uh, the fact that we are sinners by nature, that we have this inherited sin, doesn't mean that we're not capable of, of doing some good. Of course, we are still capable of doing uh, certain amounts of good, but at the very core of us, uh, there is still evil, there's still sin. And I think lots of times even, and this isn't always the case, but lots of times I think even some of the so-called good that we can do um, apart from Christ is often very self-centered. You know, maybe we're doing good so that people will look at me. Well, then is that really, uh, is that really done out of a good heart? Or is it actually done out of an evil, sinful heart? Because you want people to look to you and be like, look at Joe. Wow, he's amazing. Uh, and so that, that's just an example I would give of where, you know, even some of the good that we see might not be quite as good as, uh, as we might think at first glance. But again, just because we're at our very core sinners doesn't mean that there's no capability uh, for doing good. And I think also another part of that is just simply God's grace. Because uh, could you imagine what our world would be like if uh, we couldn't do any good? It would just be a wreck. It'd be terrible, awful, uh, much more than it is now. Um, so we, we can thank God for that as well. Yeah, and also we, 
we tend to judge by appearances. And yet the scriptures say that it's what's in the heart that ultimately matters. We looked at that last week, right? That sin isn't just about deeds, but thoughts and words and motivations and attitudes. And you had mentioned Mark 7, where it talks about where Jesus says that he has this list of all of these sinful uh, actions and thoughts, but he says it ultimately comes out of the heart, a corrupt heart. And there's this idea of, you know, um, a, a, a source of water, like a spring, right? It, it's coming out of a, if, it, if it's polluted, if there's a corruption at the, at the source, it doesn't matter how pure the water looks, there's going to be, it's going to be contaminated, right? And that's the case uh, for our hearts. We have that inherited sin nature. Um, I've once heard it put this way, if you've, you know, bitten into an apple and found a worm in it, but there's no hole on the outside. I don't know if that's ever happened to any of you. It hasn't happened to me, but um, I'm sure it's it's possible. Maybe it has, because I mean, I have bitten into apples where there's worms. I guess I didn't do too much investigation, but that can happen. And people often wonder, well, how did the worm get inside if there's no hole, right? Um, scientists have discovered that the worm can actually come from the inside. Uh, an insect lays an egg in the apple blossom, and then sometime later, the worm hatches in the heart of the apple, and then it eats its way out. And sin, we could say, is kind of like that worm. It begins in the heart, and then it works its way out in, in thoughts, words, and actions. But sometimes you don't see it. You can see a perfect look, looking good apple on the outside, and yet inside it's, it's rotten to the core. And, and that's, that's the case uh, for us, again, because we've inherited this sin nature. Again, as I said, something that a lot of people do not want to uh, admit, even those who would call themselves Christians. And Ryrie's helpful in, in giving a few examples of that in history. Joe and I just wanted to talk about two, probably the more, uh, the most popular ones, views that are out there of professing Christians who say, hold on a second, I don't think this whole inherited sin thing, this whole born by nature sinners is legitimate. Uh, what would those views be? What would the first one be? Yeah, one would be what's, uh, what's called Pelagianism. And this kind of started from uh, a monk who had this, had this idea that, um, you know, people, when, when God created Adam, they were created not necessarily very good, like uh, the Bible clearly says, rather it was kind of created neutral, you know, neither, neither sinful nor holy, just, just neutral. And so uh, because he, he thought that, uh, it's kind of like, well, Adam fell, he sinned, um, and, and now we today can look at Adam's sin and see the bad example that that is and kind of uh, learn from it. Uh, we, you know, we, can, we can see Adam's bad example and, uh, and not sin is kind of his idea. So, uh, and, and he kind of thinks like, no, there's no way Adam could have transmitted a sin nature or anything like that uh, to us. Uh, the idea is man has complete free will. And that means we completely are alone responsible for choosing to sin or not choosing to sin. It's not something we're born with. Uh, it, is, uh, it is something that we ultimately uh, just choose. And, uh, and then the problem with that, of course, is uh, a belief like, like that, when there's no inherited sin, and it's something that we can somehow, uh, you know, we are capable, apart from God almost, of choosing to sin or not sin, well, then it's like, what's the point of the cross? Uh, if we can live lives that are perfect, that are uh, holy, 
and choose to actually live these good, sinless lives, then why did Jesus die? He didn't have to die for me then because I've chosen to live a perfect life. And uh, that's, uh, that's the basic premise of uh, Pelagianism. And there is still some of that present in certain uh, church traditions today as well. It's not the, the most common view uh, for sure, but there is just a little bit of pushback here towards this biblical doctrine of the inheritance of sin, which we see quite clearly. I mean, we read it. It's very clearly a biblical doctrine. And uh, unfortunately, some people choose to ignore uh, these, these verses or uh, change the meaning of them. Yeah, and essentially, it's saying that we are in the same position as Adam. Adam could choose between good and evil. And then in the end, he chose evil. Scriptures say now because of that, we can only choose evil, ultimately. Pelagianism says, no, uh, God gives us commands. The only way he can give us legitimate commands is if we have still the ability on our own to choose between good and evil like Adam did. And that's just not what scripture teaches. Um, so that's sort of the historical view. And that word is thrown around, that label. I mean, often today in certain circles, it's like anyone who claims that man has any sense of free will is right away Pelagian, Pelagian, which is you know often not fair. But uh, a more contemporary um, challenge on this doctrine of inherited sin it comes from today was often called progressive Christianity, used to be called theological liberalism or uh, neo-orthodoxy would be one strand of that as well. But basically the idea there is Genesis is not a actual historical account. There is no historical Adam. And if there's no historical Adam, then Adam's fall is not historical either. And therefore, we're not actually physical descendants of an actual first man named Adam. So of course, then we can't possibly inherit a sin nature from someone who didn't exist. Um, rather, we are here through, you know, evolutionary processes or whatever else. And so rather, this, it's a story that's meant to tell us spiritual truth that we all have a choice to make. Or, you know, we're all human, we're all weak, and so we're inclined to sin like Adam, and therefore we need a redeemer or, you know, there's, there's many different approaches, but essentially it rests on the fact that Adam, Genesis isn't history, Adam's not a historical figure, therefore uh, the inheritance of sin isn't an actual doctrine. Problem with that is, of course, as we're going to see uh, later as well, is that uh, Paul uh, writes about this, uh, David you know, writes about this as well. And Paul uh, talks about a literal Adam and how we all are literally uh, his descendants. And that because we are literally his descendants, we have his sin nature. And that takes us really to the, the next doctrine, which is the, the second chapter that we read this week, which has to do with the imputation of sin, which is a little bit different than the inheritance of sin. And that's what Paul's talking about in Romans 5, 12, there we see that Adam's original sin is imputed to all of humanity or attributed or reckoned to us so that when Adam sinned, we all sinned in him. And that's uh, exactly what Paul says in Romans 5. Do you want to read that for us? Yeah. Romans 5, 12? So it says this, uh, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so you see exactly what Pastor Jay was just saying. There's this connection uh, with Adam's original uh, factual historical sin that occurred 
to all sinning. Uh, it says all sin when Adam sinned. It's it's again this idea that um, that when Adam committed this sin, all of mankind has sinned, uh, and and it's almost um, even though that was historically true, Adam in, in many ways represents all of mankind, all of humanity in his sin, and when he sinned, therefore all man sinned. And essentially, that's what Paul, I think, is saying here in verse 12. Yeah, you know, because people hear that, wait a minute, when Adam sinned, it was like I was sinning too, or that's credited to my account. So now I'm a sinner and Adam, wait a minute, that doesn't sound fair. That doesn't work. How does that work? Well, like you said, that word representative is, is key. Adam was God's chosen special representative for the whole human race. We can wonder why God did it that way, why God created Adam that way as a representative, but he did. And so his original sin then was, in a sense, our sin as our representative. And that became the ground for universal sin and condemnation in that. Um, no one but Adam actually committed the first original sin. But since Adam represented all people in God's eyes, God views us all as involved in that sin and thus condemned in Adam. And, you know, there's a number of analogies we could come up with. One is like a, a football player or a hockey player or a soccer player who goes offside, right? The whole team is penalized, right? Even though it was just the one person who, who did it. So it is with sin because one man, Adam, sinned. The whole human race was penalized as well probably football. I'm not as familiar with the, the, the rules in football, but I think in football, it's, it's even more so in hockey, obviously the whole team is penalized in a sense, but the one guy goes in the penalty box, but with football, I believe the whole team is just penalized right away. There's not one person. And I think that's a, that's a pretty good example. Maybe another one. I mean, obviously these examples always aren't perfect and fall short, but you know, I was watching a hockey shootout the other day. And when that one player goes to, to try to score in a sense, they're, playing for the whole team representing the whole team if he scores they win if you if he doesn't score they lose right in in certain instances um you know another somewhat analogy is uh the our our um parliamentary system right we have members of parliament who go and represent us uh, on parliament hill and in a sense what they do and what they say is representing us as well uh Ryrie has a really interesting and maybe even better illustration, uh, though, in his chapter. What you want to just rehash that, Joe? Yeah. So this is basically uh, what he says. He he's talking about an experience that one of his students had uh, one time, and he says uh, this this man who's named Bill. He shared the expenses of uh, a ride home at Christmas time from from school in another man's car. So there's Bill and Joe sharing expenses going home. And on the way, on their way home, another car went through a stop sign and hit Joe's car broadside. And uh, at the time of the accident, Joe was driving, Bill was asleep in the car. Um, but uh, Bill ended up being seriously and, and permanently injured. Um, and so he, he sued. He sued to collect damages from the owner of the other car. But that owner um, ha had kind of tried to prove uh, negligence on Joe's part, saying that, you know, Joe, he was driving this car that Bill was in, uh, he was being negligent. And, uh, and so the uh, Bill's attorney then wrote to, to this guy, 
uh, and said this. He said, if the jury finds that Joe was negligent, it will undoubtedly be imputed to you and you cannot recover. I don't think that there is anything that we can do to change that situation now. So the idea is because Bill had was paying for this trip with, with Joe, if Joe was charged with negligence, then unfortunately for Bill, there is no way for him to, um, to sue and get any money out of this um, because he also would be charged with negligence. That The negligence that Joe had was imputed to Bill. It was like it was his own because they had their money joined, right? The, the money joined Bill to Joe and to Joe's actions. And in the same type of way, the fact that we're human and Adam is human, humanity itself joins all of us to Adam and to Adam's sin. And therefore we have this imputed sin on us because of Adam's sin in the garden. Yeah, so hopefully these illustrations and analogies help a bit. Of course, none of them are perfect, but bottom line is this is how God chose to um, work things out at the beginning. And Adam is our representative and that's why his sin is imputed to us. Now, there's some differences. Obviously, you can hear by now inheritance of sin, imputation of sin. There's a lot of similarity, but there are some differences. Uh, and, and Ryrie does a good job of recognizing those. He actually has a little chart that's really helpful. But basically, the difference is in the transmission of sin. So the imputation of sin is directly from Adam to each individual in every generation. So you can imagine he's got this chart where there's Adam and then there's lines going to every single individual who, who followed him because he was my representative, right? Whereas inherited sin comes indirectly from Adam through my parents all the way back. So in his chart, there's these arrows that go from Adam to, to his children, then to his grandchildren and on and on till it comes to us going back. And so the imputation of sin is a direct transmission of sin to us from Adam, whereas inheritance of sin is a mediated transmission from our parents who got it from their parents, from their parents and their parents, all the way back to Adam. And yet it's not just, of course, this sin nature that we receive then from Adam either way. There are also then the consequences. So what are the consequences of inherited and imputed sin. And I guess we would might say, what is the sort of main consequence, something we already talked about uh, a few episodes ago? Yeah, uh, the, the main uh, consequence is ultimately uh, death, uh, both spiritual death as well as physical death um, are, are part of the, the consequence of these sin. And of course, if we go back to what we talked about a couple episodes ago, when Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they're booted from the garden. And even though the consequence was, you will die, well, immediately, just like that, there's this spiritual death that occurred in them. But they didn't physically die right away, but that was the consequence. And that same thing, remember, has been inherited by us, has been imputed onto us, that same sin. And so just like that was a consequence for Adam in the garden, it's a consequence for us today. We face spiritual death and we face physical death as well and we we see uh, these things alluded to in the scriptures uh, again if i want to turn to ephesians chapter 2 here uh, which i read before as well but we see very clearly in ephesians chapter 2 uh, that that's the consequence right verse 1 and you were dead 
in the trespasses of sins in which you once walked. Like there's this deadness that we get. That's the consequence for the uh, imputation of sin and the inheritance of sin. And there's uh, several several other passages that would certainly allude to the same thing as well. And uh, now Ryrie kind of made a bit of a difference here as well. He kind of said that inherited sin leads to spiritual death and imputed sin leads to physical death. And uh, I'm not too sure if it matters one way or the other, if that, if that designation really makes any difference. Uh, the reality is we've inherited and had Im imputed upon us this death, this consequence because of our sin. And uh, whether one leads to one, one leads to the other, I don't think that matters all that much. Um, but we do know the consequence ultimately is death. Yeah, and the passage from Romans 5 also makes that clear with this connection to Adam. So again, verse 12, but actually 13, 14 too. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So clearly there's this connection there with death. And it's, again, something we receive or something that we experience, therefore, as soon as we're born. It's this weird thing. The moment, well, the moment we're conceived, the moment life begins and in the in a mother's womb and in the moment we're born as well uh though we are it's this weird thing where though we are physically alive we're actually spiritually dead uh, and eventually that catches up with us you could say with physical death someone once said your death warrant is written on your own birth certificate right as children of adam we are dead in our sins again not the most happy and uh, most popular of truths, but but there it is. So, is there a remedy? What what can we do about this? Is there any hope? I mean, this this all sounds like pretty bad news. Well, in these passages that we read right around them in the context, we find the remedy. So the first is regeneration. We can be given new life through Jesus Christ. And Joe, that's uh, after Ephesians one. Uh, sorry, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, that gives this terrible news of our uh, situation, how we are dead in sin. What does it go on to say? What does Paul go on to tell us? Yeah, then after that comes the hope, right? And uh, in verse 4, the, the key words there, but God, uh, God stepped in. And of course, we know that speaking about Jesus on the cross, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so you see there that we have this regeneration, this new life um, because of God, uh, because of what Jesus did on the cross. And of course, because he rose again as well and gave us the Holy Spirit so that we can uh, continue to walk by the Spirit and live uh, holy lives and grow in holiness. And such a gift that God has given us uh, in that. And uh, it's such good news. It's great news that that is the remedy. You know, Christ at the cross is ultimately the remedy for both the imputed sin and the inherited sin. And, uh, and so uh, in Romans 5 as well, maybe Pastor Jay, you want to pick it up here. Uh, we can see that, again, there's this same remedy for imputed sin as well. 
yeah and if in ephesians the emphasis on this new life we can have as those who are spiritually dead in, in regeneration uh romans first of all focuses on the on the earlier verses in chapter five of this redemption we have in christ starting in verse six for while we were still weak at the right time christ died for the ungodly for one will scarcely die for a righteous person though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die but god shows his love for us in this that while we were sinners Christ died for us. And that word for is so important. It means in our place, on our behalf, Jesus took that consequence, that penalty for our sin, thereby removing it from us and that we do not have to face that ultimate consequence of death and of judgment. But he goes on also after the passage we read earlier, uh, the passage in, in Romans 5, 12 to 14, that talks about how Adam's sin is imputed to us. He goes on then in the following verses to say how through Jesus Christ and through faith in him, his righteousness is imputed to us or reckoned to us. That's why Jesus is often called the second Adam. Uh, he did what Adam failed to do. He lived a perfect life, a life of righteousness. And now those who believe in him, those who put their faith in him, that faith is counted as righteousness, just like it was for Abraham. And we receive the righteousness of Christ. So it goes on in chapter five of Romans. Uh, I'm going to read specifically starting in 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. That's talking about Adam's sin, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, again, that's Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, the sin of Adam, so one act of righteousness, Jesus' perfect life and, and death and resurrection, leads to justification and life for all men. I think that's so important because we often, I think, tend to emphasize how Jesus died for our sin and, and our sin was imputed to him so that he took away that and took away that penalty. But it's not like Jesus just took something away. He then gives us his righteousness so that we are now counted as righteous, seen as righteous before God. And so that's the remedy. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. And it means we're not hopeless as, as children of Adam, because through faith in Christ, uh, we now have all that he has accomplished for us, imputed to our account. Now, in closing, I just want to talk briefly about the difference that this doctrine should make in our lives. What would you say, Joe, even just from your own experience? I think it's it's really helped me in one big way to understand why the world is how the world is. You know, when we when we understand that there's this inherited sin, this imputed sin, the sin nature that everyone has, things start to make a whole lot more sense. You know, I, I know that that's often when it's the big questions, right? When people ask, oh, if, if God is loving, why does this happen or that happen? And I think it, it always ultimately comes down to the sin nature. It's like, listen, like humans are responsible so, for so much of this. Like it's, it's because we have the sin nature. It's the result of sin. And uh, I just think, man, if you don't have that proper understanding of a sin nature, I think it causes so many doubts because then when those questions are asked, what are you supposed to say? I, I, you know, I don't know. Like, 
well, but people are good. So why do, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, are people good? No, um, they're not. And uh, I think that really helps us to, to understand a lot of this, uh, you know, uh, again, gives us hope and, and reason for why things are the way they are. And, and not only that, I think also it helps us recognize uh, that we should be having a lot of grace and a lot of mercy with the people around us. You know, if they're, if they're wronging us somehow, uh, you know, take a step back, think, hey, you know, that same sin nature in them that I'm seeing right now, uh, that's actually in me too. <laughs> like, you know, I was born with that same sin and uh, that same nature. And uh, just realizing, man, I need to, I need to have some, some grace and some mercy for the people around me who maybe, um, you know, uh, are, are sinning against me uh, and, uh, and come alongside them, try to help them. Uh, and if they don't know the remedy yet for that, you know, help them see it. That's another big thing as well. And so, I don't know, I just really think that both of those two things, just understanding how the world works, why it works the way it does, um, and, and also just uh, having compassion, having uh, grace and having mercy on others, especially as they wrong us. I, I found that the, the sin nature, understanding that and the inheritance of sin has really been quite helpful. For sure. And you know, it's interesting when acts of evil happen in this world, you know, let's say more contemporary where there's a mass shooting. The first thing that is on everyone's mind and all the reporters are trying to get at and the politicians is why. But there's got to be some really straightforward explanation there, there has to be some causality here like the person had to be either uh, mentally disturbed or um you know been radicalized or had uh some massive beef because the people he killed had harmed him or her something like that um but sometimes there is no direct cause that can be found. And that's especially when people just scratch their heads. But either way, there's just always that question of why and how is this possible? How can, can people commit so much evil? And like you said, if you, if you don't have a biblical view of the, the sin nature we all have and the radical corruption that we all are born with, you don't have the ultimate answer, the ultimate explanation. And that's especially true, like I said before, when children do horrendous things, then especially there's just this questioning, how could this be? I mean, children are, are so innocent, right? But we know that's not the case. We know that the sin nature is just as present. And that would just take me to one other, I think, application of this is why it's important that we evangelize children. Now, there's a whole debate, of course, that we could, we're not going to get into about um, at what point is a child accountable for their sin? Um, you know, do, do infants automatically um, go to heaven? That kind of, those kind of questions. But the reality is, whatever, however we answer all those questions, children, are, all of us are born with a sin nature and therefore all of us face the consequences of, of death and judgment. And so children need the gospel just as much as adults do. And we wanna reach children. And we want to uh, share the good news of Jesus that they can have life in him. I think that's important uh, as well. And then one other thing is, 
it just, I think this, these doctrines for me fuel that anticipation for my own glorification. Uh, the biblical teaching that yes, right now through faith in Jesus Christ, uh, I'd no longer face the penalty for sin. I'm spiritually alive. I'm not spiritually dead anymore, but there's going to come a time where the presence of sin is gone. When I see Jesus face to face and his many passages like first John uh, three, two, you know, I will be like him. I just can't wait for that day because even though, uh, again, the penalty for sin has been erased. The power of sin no longer has dominion over me. I don't have to continue sinning as Paul says in Romans six, the presence is still there. The sin nature is still there in this life. And it still rears its ugly head. I still allow this, the flesh, my sin nature um, to at times control me and I still sin. And so that day when that sin nature will be completely gone and I will be like the new Adam, Jesus Christ, I just can't wait for that day. Uh, what, a, what a day it's going to be. Well, I think that's where we will end today's discussion I invite you to join us next time we'll be discussing chapters 38 to 39 in the book which cover the biblical teaching on personal sins and sin in the christian life well, what should we do with sin as christians how do we handle sin what do, what do we make of it until then may the grace of the lord jesus christ the love of god and fellowship of the holy spirit abide with you now and forever so long see ya